0: I'm so excited to say thank you for helping this podcast grow. I've had over 4,000 listeners now. It's amazing. Most people are listening on Apple. Most people are women. 90% are women and between the ages of 40 and 60. So fun demographic stuff from Anchor. So we are small but mighty and definitely taking off. It's so cool to hear from doctors that they use my podcast as a resource for their patients. So keep the ideas coming. It means the world to me. So I am so excited. I actually created a website. The last time I made a website was in like 1999. I was in the neuroscience department at the University of Minnesota and my summer job was making a website. I actually took a class. (laughs) That information did not help me at all in 2020 in making a website. So I just made a website for the second time (laughs) 20 some years later and it's kellycaspersonmd.com the other way to find it is you aren't broken um You Are Not Broken was already taken. Somebody has that. (laughs) So kellycaspersonmd.com. On there, I have a uh, place where you can register for my class that I'm doing in September. It is the first ever class, and you are going to have lifetime access to all of my other classes. And my vision is a very hands-on weekly Zoom meeting sex ed coaching it's going to be amazing we're going to talk about anatomy we're going to talk about female sexual response we're going to talk about desire and long-term relationships we're going to talk about desire mismatch in relationships this is going to go diving deep into your individual situations So you're going to get so much value out of it and this is the first ever class so that's starting september 21st you can sign up on the website super excited just had to come in before today's episode and let you know about it all right thank you so much guys enjoy Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kasperson. So we are back week two. Last week, we talked about the hardware this week hardware's anatomy this week we're going to talk about the software which is all about desire and orgasm the audio on this this was a zoom lecture originally for the nurse practitioners in my town so the audio is a little bit well subpar but you know what if i was perfect i'd never put anything out for you guys so <laughs> i think the content is so good that i just i want to give it to you and i hope you'll you know be graceful with my mistakes. Before I get started, I just wanted to let you know, you know, I always say how meaningful it is that people reach out to me and tell me, you know, that they're listening and that the, that the podcast affects them. So I just wanted to share this woman reached out. She's married, she's got kids, she's been in menopause for 3 years, and she says nobody ever told her, you know, what was normal as far as, you know, when she grew up in her house, so she never knew even the questions to ask about sex or her body, and she never really looked at her anatomy until recently. Super meaningful that she reached out and she says uh, how funny I am and that sh- that she just thanks me for sharing my heart with you guys. So she said, maybe one day because of y'all, this information will be available and easier for all of us women. So I just love that. That is like the currency that keeps me going. So let me know how this is meaningful to you. Even more meaningful is for you guys to leave a review on Apple because it lets other women know that there is a lot of good stuff in here. So thanks to you guys. And also remember, this, this talk was given to nurse practitioners, so it is a little more focused towards healthcare providers. So you're going to hear me talk about medications and dosing and FDA approval and stuff like that. But I still think this is super high yield for a lot of people. I know a lot of gynecologists and other providers share this with their patients and learn from it and how they can help. So always remember, this is not individual medical advice. Always consult your individual doctor. But if this sounds, you know, kind of high level on talking about dosing, that's why the audience was a bunch, a room full of doctors and nurse practitioners. So thanks for listening. Round two starts today. Have a good day. Remember, you're not broken. Okay, I am back. Before I share screen again, just some questions that came up. Um, Question about vaginal estrogen. Do I say do it once a day, times two weeks, then two to three weeks? Uh, You got to meet your patient where she is, number one. My people don't know how many times a day they pee and they come to me for urinary frequency, right? So like, I want to keep it as simple as possible. There's no strong data to be like, oh, a loading dose does any sort of darn good. It's just going to confuse people. And plus, estrogen cream's kind of messy if you use it a lot. So I just say two to three times a week for life. I just keep it super simple. Second question, what is DHEA for? So DHEA is the precursor hormone to both estradiol and testosterone. That's why it's so cool. And, and the, what the vagina does, the vagina actually will convert it. Right, which is even cooler. And what's even cooler is the FDA has approved it specifically for dyspareunia. So that is why Medicare. Then you had to be like, well, uh, dyspareunia—that's a lifestyle drug. They don't cover Viagra, Uh, but it works wonderful for pain. And why do women get dyspareunia? It's because of vulvovaginal atrophy in the first place. So I hope that answers what the heck DHEA is used for. When do I? So DHEA is more expensive, right, than your generic estradiol cream. When do I do DHEA? If they're refractory i think they look well estrogenized they're still having pain or they're still kind of discussing uh you know dryness uh, i'll throw dhea in today i did dhe dhea comes in these really nice kind of coconutty suppositories um plus i do it less than once a day then that cuts the price in half too so there's all these tricks right but uh so today i had a woman and so i did DHEA in the vagina you put it at the top of the vagina because it has to be warm enough to actually melt that cream down DHEA in the top of the vagina, and then vaginal estrogen in the vulva. Because um, she was doing the, you know, sunscreen in the ear, right? She was doing vaginal cream up at the top of the vagina, had a completely atrophic vulva still, still had dyspareunia, pain, UTIs. So, uh, contraindications for estrogen cream, there's, there's the short answer is there really isn't any. Um, if, if you've had breast cancer, I always say... Check with your oncologist. The oncologist here, uh, you know, we've kind of had some rotating oncologists, but especially if I talk to him about somebody, this is about quality of life, right? And I think we have to remember that when cancer survivors. What have we done if we've cured you from cancer and you can't have sex and you can't pee because you're peeing razor blades, right? So a little bit of vaginal estrogen is even less than what the applicator is just to the vulva can be so amazing for quality of life. Yeah, I always think about that in my cancer survivors. Um, if somebody's actively being treated for breast cancer, they're on an aromatase inhibitor. I'm I'm going to say, you know what, let's not do it. Let's talk about the laser. The laser actually has really great data in the post breast cancer population, specifically for this reason, because they just they don't. And, and even if there is going to be studies, uh, they are just so freaked out by the word estrogen. Right. And I respect that. Um, so we all have more of a, uh, laser conversation because even then you're like, well, if they can't have any estrogen, testosterone's really been unstudied in that population too. So, and and DHEA, again, it's just going to tell you it's been unstudied in that population. Oh, sex cautions. So I always tell women estrogen creams for you. Lube is for you and your partner. (laughs) So I'm like, can you find a part of your day that you're not having sex where you can use estrogen cream? Just separate it. The penis doesn't need estrogen cream um do you have any precautions regarding piv or oral sex using estrogen cream um yeah just separate them right if you think you're gonna have sex that night don't put on your estrogen cream um or put on your estrogen cream in the morning i always tell people that you know we all we're all supposed to floss every day most people floss two to three times a week when you floss use your estrogen cream (laughs) like i just try to keep it as simple as possible this is a maintenance medication right so that's what i do with that Um, My other uh, precautions on my talk, I didn't tell everybody, I tend to use heteronormative language as a habit. I'm sorry if that's offensive to anybody, especially as I get into talking about intercourse intimacy. I don't always mean to assume penis and vaginas or heterosexual relationships, so I want to be a little more comprehensive in that. The other statement on that is you will have trans uh, men who still have vulvas and vaginas, and they can get severely atrophic and painful. So a little bit of vaginal estrogen on the urethra and the vulva will keep pain away with sex and they won't absorb it. That's the other nice thing about vaginal estrogen, you won't absorb it. um, And so it won't contradict the hormones that they wanna be on. So that there's kind of my trans teaching for that. Um, the other thing about estrogen cream, if you have such bad, unhealthy skin, it's porous, it's thin, you might actually absorb your estrogen cream for a couple of weeks. You might get a little bit of breast tenderness. i just say back off for a little bit. Once that skin is healed, it's going to absorb hardly anything, but you got to get that skin healthy. Same with the burning. So estu- I stopped using my estrogen cream because it burns. Two thoughts on that, number one, same thing, if you've got sunburn, even if you're putting medicine on your sunburn, it's gonna burn until it heals, stick with it. Estrogen cream takes about six to eight weeks to really kick in because we're growing new skin. That's what it's doing, it's growing healthier skin. So stick with it. If it's still burning after a good college try, I switched to the compounded estradiol because it doesn't have an alcohol base to it. And sometimes the base is just irritating. But you kind of have to suss that out to be like are you brand new is your skin so atrophic that it just any any touching or any lube or anything just burns so software desire and orgasm this is freaking fun to talk about guys okay so what my why why did i learn about this i did not learn about this in urology residency i'm self-taught and it's fascinating uh i had a bladder cancer survivor female she came in uh, yearly cancer check doing great cancer free crying in my office saying, I love my husband so much. I just don't want to have sex uh, and I have pain with sex and she's just crying. And I had no idea, I had no idea how to help her. So I said, okay, I'm going to go figure this out, come back. She came back in a year crying in my office, same thing. Have you made any progress? Nope, nothing. Um, and I said, well, great. Cause now, now I know all the things. So she was, she's legitimately my why to why I've kind of turned this into my passion because what I have found is nobody knows a darn thing about normal female sexual response and desire. Nobody knows it. Again, going back to sex education, we were taught to fear infections. We were taught to fear pregnancy. We were not taught about the vulva and the clitoris being for pleasure. Um, and we're not certainly not taught about normal desire, especially what happens in long-term relationships, right? Uh, how do you desire something that's been around you for 20 years? right? Cultivating desire. So Hollywood is completely, uh, misinformative is, as far as coming to women's sexual function. So desire types, there are two different types of desire. There is reactive desire and there is spontaneous desire. And I like to think, I like to use analogies in my teaching because I think it really helps get the point across. So spontaneous is you're, you're hungry. We're going to use hunger as our, as our analogy. You're hungry. You're seeking out food. You need to fulfill an urge and you are going to go find it reactive hunger is I just had a lovely meal at one of my favorite restaurants and the bill's going to come but now they uh brought out the dessert table and oh my gosh now I'm going to have dessert wasn't wasn't hungry but this is looking good so that's reactive I'm reacting to the dessert table coming out even though I wasn't having any spontaneous thoughts about dessert Okay, so let's switch that back to intimacy. Spontaneous desire is you're 18, all of your locker partners are looking super good and you are gonna seek out sex. If our whole world operated on the spontaneous desire dogma, nothing would get accomplished, right? It's there for a reason, we need to populate our, uh, our planet, but spontaneous desire actually goes away as we mature in age and as we stick ourselves with long-term partners right? So that desire goes down. Reactive desire is the majority. It is the common. It is the normal in women, especially as women age, perimenopause, postmenopause, and especially as women get kids, they get jobs and they get long-term relationships. Explaining this to women will normalize their experiences. So here's what you ask. What they say they come in and they say, Hey, I've lost, I have no desire. And so you say, well, when you have sex and intimacy with your partner, is it satisfying? They're like, oh, yeah, I have a great time, I have great orgasms, I love, I love doing it. It's fun. I just don't, I just don't desire it. My libido's gone. I've lost it, right? And then you say, well, you have reactive desire, which is completely normal, and you are not broken. Keep enjoying sex. You don't need to fix anything. P- women just don't know that reactive desire is what's normal. So if you look at Masters and Johnson in the 1960s when they described sexual response, desire wasn't even part of it. That's not part of the four parts of Masters and Johnson. So so we make this big deal about where did my desire go when it not being there is completely normal and we do things to cultivate desire in relationships. That single fact will normalize so many women in your office, you just reassure them, be like, well, congratulations, you're the majority. The other analogy, and women respond to this analogy a lot, is it's Friday night, I'm done with work, I wanna go party. I'm gonna go seek out a party, because I'm feeling like a party. Most women aren't doing that, but you're like, you know what, my best friend's calling, I think there might be some good wine at that party, and they play the music I like. All right. So your friend takes you to a party and you're like, thank God I'm at this party. This was a really good time, right? That's reactive enjoyment, which is how most of us, we're not like seeking out a party, you know, but we get ta- kind of talked into it and we end up having a good time. So what matters is the party you're trying to go to. Is your sex pain free? And is your sex desirable? Meaning Desirable meaning, are you having a good time? Are you having orgasm? Because what you're doing is you're creating a feedback loop, right? So you go have sex and it's painful, or you go have sex and the male partner has an orgasm and you don't, and you wonder where your desire goes. Well, you're not, you're, there isn't a good party to go to. Right. So you have to make sure that the sex that you're desiring is actually enjoyable. So going back to Masters and Johnson, arousal, plateau, orgasm and resolution desires at the front, but not even described as them as a thing in their four part stuff. Point being, you don't need desire to be there to get into arousal, plateau and orgasm. Uh, The gray line is the female. The female can have multiple orgasms and her resolution time is much, much shorter. What's the theory behind that? The theory being it's the ejaculation emission of the man that actually takes time to reset, which is why men have a lot harder time having multiple orgasms. But women don't have the semen ejaculation function, so they can uh, their resolution time can be a lot shorter, and that's where they can have the multiple orgasms because they're already kind of up in that plateau, which is physiologically your point closest to orgasm. This is so important. So women come to me for pain with sex, and I, I start simple, and I'm like... Do you use lube? And they're like, well, no, my boyfriend told me that that I shouldn't have to use lube. Or my boyfriend told me that I should already be wet. Like freaking boyfriends, right? Welcome to my life. So I had two women come and see me. I'm a surgeon. Come and see me for pain with sex and they didn't even use lube. Right? And the other thing you check, I mean, these are like simple wins for you, right? Is you have to go back to the basics. Don't go being like, oh, you have provoked neuroproliferative proliferative vestibulodynia. No, she's not using lube and she's not aroused, right? So what this picture shows is physiologically for a woman, uh, for arousal, more blood flow comes into the distal part of the vagina. The labia spreads and it gets engorged. It's allowing something to enter the vagina. What the vagina does is it lengthens and it tips. So it, it expands to actually accept a penis. So if you put a penis in a vagina that's not prepared for it, don't wonder why it's painful. Right? And I think this is very very cuz women don't get taught this. We don't get sex ed. Lubrication, and here's the other thing about about lubrication is arousal desire mismatch. Right? So I can be aroused and interested in sex, but my labia isn't having and my vagina isn't having the vasodilation necessary for the vaginal transudate, which is a medical term for wetness, to happen, right? So you can have arousal without any lubrication, right? Conversely, you can have lubrication without any desire. Uh, You know, the tragic example of that is a rape victim who uh, the jury might say, well, she wanted it because she was wet and had an orgasm. No, she didn't want it, but her pelvis was responding to sexual stimuli. Right? So I hope that explains that you, you can need lube if you're not wet enough, and it has nothing to do with how aroused or how interested you are in the sexual experience. So lots of, lots of big topics. I, I know I'm kind of going through it fast, but our job is to really normalize a woman's experience and kind of dig into why am I having pain. And a lot of it is if you, if you rush in to putting the penis in the vagina right away, the, the body, the penis, uh, the vagina is not ready for it and can cause a lot of pain, especially that deep dyspareunia, because the vagina hasn't lengthened and tilted to accept a penis. So going from Masters and Johnson to Basson, Basson is a female. And she says hold on a second. Who said we needed to have desire in order to have arousal and sex? Right. And so she really threw spontaneous desire and responsive desire into the mix and saying, maybe we don't need to have desire at all. We just start having that sexual motivation, the intimacy, the touch, the arousal, and then sex and orgasm will happen. So she does. and I love this drawing because it's just a much more holistic viewpoint of like, Especially as we're medicalizing sex, which I think is very important, right? Women need to be comfortable talking to their providers about this. But if we tell women that the answer is in a pill, we're really missing out on educating about normal sexual uh, physiology. And so I love Bassan's model because, number one, she's a female, and number two, she really, you know, especially there's going to be advertisements, right? Like, oh, I've lost my desire. Like it's this missing cat on, you know, in Fairhaven. It's like, well, who can I find? Who can I get to find my desire for me? It's like, let's rethink what desire is. Desire mismatch. So I gave a lecture to physicians taking care of multiple sclerosis patients on sex and intimacy with multiple sclerosis. So I went down to Seattle, and I talked about desire mismatch. And a physician came up to me afterwards and he said, you just explained my marriage that I had a divorce from 20 years ago and the therapist couldn't explain it to me. And all I explained was a simple fact. It is not the low desire person's job to rise to the higher desire person's level. And I will repeat that in other terms. I don't like running marathons and my husband does. It's not my job to start liking running marathons right? I like oatmeal for breakfast and he likes toast. It's not my job to start liking toast, right? When you put two people in a relationship, they like different things. Some people are going to want sex more often than the other person. It's their job to take care of their sexual needs. The lower desire person, which is typically female, she is not broken. It is not her job to rise to the higher desire. But I think of men put, and again, I'm using heterosexual relationships and I'm using. Males is the high desire. Men put a lot of pressure on women, right? And what we need to do is we need to say, let's have a conversation about what a meaningful sex life is for you guys. And would you, I love this one. What's normal? How many times a week am I supposed to have sex? Right? Like we get into this like eight cups of water a day, 35 minutes of cardiovascular exercise, eight fruits and vegetables. Like women have enough to keep track of. Don't tell them three, right? Would you rather have three unsatisfying sexual experiences a week or one mind-blowing amazing one, right? So when you put it like that, it's like it doesn't matter what the number is. What matters is that it's enjoyable for the couple and it's satisfying. But one satisfying, way better than three crappy, right? So don't give people a number of what normal is because I think you're just putting you're just putting pressure on on people and you're not guaranteeing that. Going back to the beginning, pleasure is, pleasure is the goal, not frequency. Not not perfect harmony in numbers of what everybody desires, so you'll you'll save you'll save some relationships this way. Orgasm inequality. This will get people on their soapbox. I love this one. So, Lori Mintz published a book. She's a PhD. She published a book called Cliteracy, which is amazing. And if you look at uh, homosexual and heterosexual relationships, the people having the most orgasms are the heterosexual male. The second group having the most equal orgasms are the homosexual female. The people having the least amount of orgasms is the female in a heterosexual relationship at a rate of about 80 to 85 for the man for every time they have sex and about 65 for the, for the female. So people are having almost two to one orgasms in heterosexual relationships. Um, so that's a big deal. If women, women go around, they say, where's my desire? right? If it's not a good party, you're not going to desire it. So if you think of it like that, of like, well, where did that come from, right? Who said women's orgasms weren't as important as men's? So if you look at penis and vagina sex, only 18% of women reported they orgasmed from intercourse alone. Penis and vagina sex for the male lasts about three to five minutes. Women take up to 30 minutes to achieve orgasm. So if you put a penis in the vagina and the woman's not ready and the man has an orgasm, the woman just had an unsatisfying sexual event. And I want to, I want, I talk really fast and I use a lot of absolutes because that's my style and it's always nuanced, right? We don't always need to have orgasms to have it be considered sexually satisfying. But if you were to take that and kind of break apart uh, desire and sexual uh, inequality, you're, that we're explaining why it is. So getting back to that low desire issue, number one, lack of anatomy knowledge, who was taught the clitoris and the vulva, uh, labia minora were important. Not many people. We were told, we were told, I, you you know, the Hollywood movie, right? Like reality bites where Ethan Hawke and Winona Ryder, right? Like that's my sex education. Like remember they were like hot for each other and they have a mutually satisfying dual orgasms in like 30 seconds, right? And I think back to it now, and I'm like, that guy was unemployed, he smoked cigarettes, he didn't wash his hair, like, why was I digging that guy when I was in high school? But again, that was another example of spontaneous desire. I was like, anybody's looking good, and now my responsive desire, like, get a job, wash your hair, stop your cigarettes, you're not sexy. So, go, But going back to that's how, that's how Hollywood teaches us about how women are supposed to achieve pleasure, and then we think we're broken when we don't have mutually beneficial orgasms within three to five minutes because we're trying to live up to the male expectation. And then society's belief that it's a woman's job to please a man, it's a man's job to give a woman an orgasm, and it's where also women aren't as, uh, it's not as, you know, necessary. It's okay if she didn't have an orgasm because he did. Isn't that nice? And then he's wondering why she, do, why she doesn't want to have sex with him, right? I love the melted ice cream analogy. So I am completely addicted to Haagen-Dazs mint chocolate chip ice cream. I have I, I have a spontaneous desire for Haagen-Dazs mint chocolate chip ice cream. I will eat it all the time. If you give it to me melted, I won't want it. right? So if sex is not satisfying, you won't want it. So don't go around chasing this desire problem if the sex isn't good. And it's like, you can't make me like melted ice cream. You just can't. I don't like it. Even if my husband liked it, I still wouldn't like it because it's not the ice cream that is satisfying to me. So there is a medical definition, and we're going to see this more and more because now we have drugs for desire, which is, again, I think it's amazing. We are getting women to talk about healthy, normal life experiences that they should be interested in. It's, it's completely fine with me that it's being medicalized because it legitimizes it, makes it real, and it allows conversation. So, decrease spontaneous desire, decrease response to erotic cues, decrease desire to initiate it, and it also has to be distressing. Okay, that's kind of part of the diagnosis of like, I don't want to have sex, but I'm perfectly fine with that. Right? Okay, well, that's fine. You, people's desire levels are different. That's fine. But it's distressing to my relationship. It's distressing to me. It's distressing to our marriage. Now you can be defined as hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So now we have medications for the software. There's two FDA-approved medications for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. Both are FDA-approved for premenopausal women. What? So the exclusion criteria included menopause and postmenopause. So we just threw out a large majority of American women in these clinical trials. They are being studied, but the FDA actually required th- throwing out, and why did they do that? Okay, because if you have a body with estrogen and testosterone and progesterone in it, it is going to respond differently to medications than a body that doesn't have that in there. Fair enough. But we still, to this day, don't have any FDA-approved medications for post-menopausal women. We have bremelanotide and we have filbanserin. Bremelanotide was being studied as a self-tanning product because it's similar to melanin. So the study guy, I love these stories, the Viagra story is just as good. So this study guy takes it home and gives himself a double dose to kind of see how tan he can get, and he has an erection for a day. And he's like, well, there's something to this, right? So they studied bremelanotide, and that's where uh, it, it's working. And going back to desire, right, so breaks and accelerators, dopamine and serotonin, right? So this actually works in the brain to increase dopamine. Dopamine is what makes you want to desire, makes you want to seek out rewarding behavior, right? Food, sex. Um, so that's how Bremolantide actually works on the brain more than the general organs. Philbanserin or Addy, same deal, was being studied as a antidepressant. It's a crappy antidepressant, but the women said, I had better sex when I was taking this study drug. Again, working on the brain, more dopamine means more accelerators for sex, less breaks for sex. If you think about what's a break for sex, well, the dishes need to be done, the kids have lunches need to be packed, and I've got a presentation tomorrow night for the Nurse Practitioners Association, right? Those are all breaks for sex. There's actually a study looking at why do men who wash dishes have more sex, right? And it's like, duh, they're taking the, the uh, break off the woman's brain, right? She's like, I'm being taken care of that project is off my to-do list, he's helping out, that's sexy, let's have sex, right? So women who, men who do dishes have more sex at home, because they're taking that, that uh, inequality of housework burden off of women and helping to equalize it. Bupropion is an antidepressant, it helps with sexual desire, it can actually be used, again, bupropion now off-label, but used to contradict the uh, s- sexual desire side effects that come with antidepressants. So things that providers don't really talk to patients about is how an antidepressant will really put your uh, desire in the drain. Why is it doing that? Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. You have more serotonin, so you're happy, but you're not seeking out rewarding behaviors like sex. So you're giving yourself more break on your sex drive when you take an antidepressant. So bupropion can kind of counter interact that. Sildenafil studies are mixed. It helps blood flow just like it helps penis blood flow um but it is does not work well for desire some people you will use it to again contradict the antidepressant side effects uh, but the studies are really mixed on viagra for women and then testosterone works really actually pretty darn good testosterone is great for sex drives it is not fda approved in america there are testosterone for and this is again systemic not vulvar. okay so vulvar testosterone think more pain Uh, uh, Systemic testosterone is for systemic, uh, and so you rub it on your calf or your leg. Side effects, hair growth, so put it on a place where women shave, usually calf, thigh. Um, It's one-tenth the dose of a male. There are, again, no FDA-approved products for women, so what you do is you give them testum 1%, 30-day supply, divide that by 10, so it lasts 300 days. It's actually dirt cheap. Uh, I check their labs and sex hormone binding globulin before I give anybody testosterone because I'm going to follow it a th- uh, three months later. All of these drugs, give them for three months. If it doesn't help, stop it. It's not working, right? So it's nice because you have kind of a nice, like, I'll see you in three months. Let's do this. In the meantime, you'll see your physical therapist and your sex therapist to work on your relationship and your pain. Um, really that three-legged stool that I tell women, if you don't do one of those legs of the stool, the, it's not going to hold it up as well. Um, so testosterone, again, FDA, the FDA hardly requires anything to get a new formulation of testosterone for men. There's over 30 testosterone formulations for men. The restrictions that the FDA has put on any study looking at testosterone for women, it, it is now a cost of $1 billion. So it's probably not going to happen because they have so many more rules for safety in women. Um, But there is data of years of testosterone in women, and safety is looking very good. Uh, More recommended for postmenopausal because you do not want any risk of fetal masculinization in a woman who gets pregnant while taking testosterone. Testosterone dosing. Testosterone in women is dosed at one-tenth the male dose. So if you take Testum, um, it's a 30-day supply. It comes in a box. So it's Testum 1%. I believe it's 50 grams off the top of my head. And what you do is it's hard to do because it's not dosed for women. So you say you take one of them and you make it last 10 days. So it's a rough estimate, but that's how you dose testosterone in women. Dirt cheap, though, because a 30-day supply will last you 300 days. Uh, so that's nice. Um, vitamin D replacement to improve testosterone. Vi- there is vitamin D data for, pe- for pelvic pain. There's actually pretty good data for pelvic pain. Um... I have not seen vitamin D specifically improving testosterone. I don't know what the mechanism of that is off the top of my head. Um, But yeah, they're kind of, oh, of note, vitamin D testing is very expensive. A lot of insurance companies require an osteoporosis diagnosis or something like that. So just from my family practice docs who've told me like, it's like 80 bucks to check your vitamin D. I didn't know that. That's just what I just learned about vitamin D. You guys, that was so rapid fire, coming at you so fast. I <laughs> Can you tell I was like on a time limit for that for that lecture I gave? So I hope that was helpful. Leave the questions on my Facebook page. You can reach me there. I am starting. This is super exciting. I haven't put this on the podcast yet. I am starting a course, an online sex ed for adult course. So stay tuned. Follow me on Facebook at You Are Not Broken or Instagram at Kelly Casperson MD because you will find out more then. All right. Until then, remember. remember. Remember, you are not broken.